Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thanks for listening tonight. So, in, uh, in recent days, I've heard some people questioning in different places why projections about COVID-19 were so far off. And now I hope you're, you're staying safe, you're making sure to wash your hands well, don't touch your face, practicing proper social distancing. It's likely, if you're listening to this, you're in an area right now, at least as it's being recorded, that you have to stay home. I've been running my own projections on the growth of COVID-19 in the United States based on CDC data. And I've linked to a couple of videos in the description from Three Brown, One Blue, which is an educational YouTube channel. And in those videos, um, the, there's a really great description of how these, um, these viruses or these pandemics spread. Right? And we talked about that in the other COVID-19 episode where it follows a logistic curve, but there's an exponential phase. And so there's this question of why are the projections so wrong? Or, you know, the in, in England, people were writing these articles saying they had said, uh, f- you know, 500,000. Now they're talking about, I think it was like uh, 20 or f- 50,000. You know, they're walking back the projections. They, they overshot. And the truth is that I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think the right way to look at it is that these measures are working. We've made some significant disruptions to our typical daily lives, our typical economy, and in a way that we've never done before. And it is stopping the spread of this disease. It's at least slowing it. I kind of liken what's happened unto someone who is a pastor in a car and says, hit your brakes, you're going to hit the truck. And so the driver hits their brakes, and they come to a stop safely and say, well, what happened? I thought you said I was going to hit this truck. I didn't hit the truck at all. Realistically, right, we, we make predictions about the future, and fundamentally, our predictions are based on a number of assumptions, right, and, and our understanding of how things work. And we have a good understanding of how diseases work in general in, in terms of this kind of growth. There's some things we don't know about this disease, like any disease, and there's a lot we don't know about the way people react in in a sort of mass quarantine situation. But what we have found is that people are responding to it, they're staying home, they're staying safe, and the measures are working. And so in, in my model, I've been updating it every day, and for quite a while, it was very good at predicting the next day. But lately, it's been overshooting a little bit every day. And even a little bit, even a 1% difference when we're talking about something that's growing exponentially is a huge change. When I first started tracking this, the growth rate of new cases was growing very, very significantly. It was growing 50% per day. And as time's gone on, that's gone down as we've been enacting more and more social distancing. So if you want a way to imagine what it's like to track a disease, if you're trying to, to conceptualize it, imagine a train going down a track that's straight. Okay, So we're looking at how far and how fast this train went. Uh, so it's on a straight 
a straight track and it's traveling. Now every foot, meter, whatever you want to say, could represent someone who is either sick or dead, depending on what you're trying to predict. Let's just go with people who've contracted the illness. Okay, so every foot represents one person who's contracted it, every foot that it travels. Okay, so that's total cases, right? So if it travels 5,000 feet, that's 5,000 cases. It travels 350,000 feet, that's 350,000 cases. So we can imagine distance being the total number of people who've been infected. But looking at just that isn't really a useful measurement. And it seems like sometimes I hear politicians look at the numbers today and just assume that's how they're going to be. They're not going to change that much. But we've seen they change really fast because of exponential growth. And I think if uh, I think if we could get more politicians to watch this sort of video where the, the, the math is laid out, maybe we would have... Uh, some kind of an improvement, you know, uh, in in their understanding and, and ability to react. Um, so with the train metaphor, if you compare yesterday's total to today's, right, how many today minus how many yesterday, you get the number of new cases, right, cases per day, infections per day. In the train context, we're talking about feet per second, or miles per hour, or kilometers an hour, something like that. That's a measurement of speed, right? So we have the total cases is like distance. The daily cases are like, uh, daily new cases are like speed. And what I've been trying to keep a close eye on is acceleration. So that that is the number of new cases today versus the number of new cases yesterday, right? As, as you look at that, you can get an idea that the number of new cases is either growing or slowing. And if you look at the, the trajectory of our growth, it is just an exponential growth, right? Um, you can put it on all these different charts and it, you know, it doesn't look good. But if you start looking at the acceleration, right, we're still seeing growth even right now. We haven't, we haven't seen enough days of decline to say that the, the, um, new case rate's going to decline. But what we are seeing is that we're getting much fewer days of growth in new cases, and we're starting to see a decline some days in new cases, right? So the acceleration is starting to have peaked maybe in a few more days, maybe in a week. It will have peaked, and then we'll start to decelerate. We'll start to slow down the number of new cases, and as I've been following this, um, my projections have been pretty, pretty much around the April 20th time frame. But with the last few days, official numbers, it does pull things back a bit. So that's a really positive sign. And um, I'm hoping that that continues because this is, a, you know, such a terrible thing for so many people. And, you know, I, I know... Uh, people who've been affected in my family, and I know other people who've been affected and impacted, and um, you know, we, want, we want everyone to be safe, we want everyone to be okay. So we have, we have some information, we have some options, we have some knowledge about how this works, right? Um, social distancing, hand washing, right, some behavioral changes, societal changes are our best tools still. Because by doing those things, we're able to prevent the spread. And you know, if you're around fewer people, you're going to get less sick. 
Um, the current state of treatment in general in hospitals is supportive care. So if, if you have mild symptoms, the recommendation is just stay at home unless they get so severe, you, you know, you're too short of breath to walk to the bathroom or something. Um, everything else is unproven. I put a bunch of links about that malaria treatment that keeps coming up in the news. Um, some are positive, some are negative. The most recent study that that I read, and I did read the whole study on it, it's only uh, four or five pages. It was a small sample, but they were not able to show any improvement in viral clearing, which indicates that it doesn't seem to be working. Um, they've tried to use that malaria treatment on viral infections in the past, because in in a test tube, it looks very promising, but it's never panned out in other viruses and animal models. Um, it's a pretty dangerous drug in terms of side effects. So it's something we want to get right. We want to be careful about, and the CDC has actually removed their guidance on it from their website as a result, uh, their, their guidance to physicians. Um, so right now, researchers are looking at a few things, um, a few types of things. The big one right now, I think the thing that's most likely to come first is a therapeutic. There are uh, three or uh, two or three different ones. One of them is this um, malaria medication, but there are a couple others that are out there that um, look promising. One is for HIV. If it works for HIV, it's likely to work for this because this is also an RNA virus. Um, I'll say more likely, right? The viruses are different, but RNA viruses tend to mutate more. They tend to have different... Um, you know, different problems. Viruses in general are harder to treat because they're not really alive, uh, not in the way that a bacteria is, or certainly not in the way that a, a, you know, worm or a human are. And so viruses are a, a really different sort of thing, and you can't kill them in the sense that you can stop their biological processes because they don't have any. Their only real thing is they float around, and when they hit a cell that they can get into, they inject their RNA and they take over the cell. And cause a cell to produce more viruses. And so the only thing you can really do is disrupt what's happening in that cell takeover scenario. Um, so those therapeutics that kind of directly affect that would, of course, be good. Another option for therapeutic medication would be um, artificial antibodies. So when you're, the, the way this works, your body, when it encounters a virus, it's going to analyze little chunks of the DNA or RNA in the virus and it's going to look at them, and it's going to kind of save that. And then it's going to find something that, based on that, it can suck up that that DNA or that RNA. Or, you know, based on its little landing patterns, the, the little um, receptors that it uses to invade your cell, it's going to figure that stuff out. And then it's going to go around and, and kind of soak them up, and you're going to sneeze them out or, you know, something, right? Your, your body will get rid of them. Um, and so that... That is another type of therapeutic where they're going to try to come up with an artificial version of these antibodies that they can put into people. And then you'll be able to use this artificial antibody to treat. Now, I, I've i only read a few things about it. I couldn't find my um, what I've read when I was putting the notes together here today. But my my guess, and it's just speculation, I'm, I'm not a doctor, uh, but my speculation is that this would be a treatment that would work best on people who are in a severe situation, Right once they're hospitalized, maybe as the, at the time they're about to go to the ICU, you'd probably provide this, and that's going to reduce the viral load in the body significantly, um, and that that may even cause some sort of recovery and some number of weeks of immunity, but just weeks, 
you know, maybe eight at the high end. And so, at least according to what I read. So, you know, this is something where it, it may work in those cases, but hopefully most people who get this, from what we've seen, you know, most people can recover from this and their body will have some sort of immunity to it because it'll know how to produce those antibodies. So that's that's kind of where we're at with it, right? We've got these potential for, therapeutic, for therapeutics, including artificial antibodies. Um, you know, the question is, if you give someone an artificial antibody, are they going to produce their own antibodies to fight the virus? And if not, then that's why I, I suspect that you won't, because you won't need it. And I also suspect that the the result of that is you don't want to give it to someone until you know that they're in a in a bad situation because the person is better off long term recovering from this and having their body be able to fight it in the future. The other option is um, you know what are called prophylactics, which you know I, I think most people know as uh, as uh, as a condom or something. But a prophylactic is a treatment or medicine or something that is used to prevent. So it's a preventive sort of medicine. And social distancing and hand washing are actually a form of prophylaxis in this, situa- this situation. But the big one that everyone's hoping for is that a vaccine is discovered. And I read that uh, Bill Gates is actually, uh, through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, putting a tremendous amount of money into seven different companies that are working on developing vaccines and also trying to fund construction of um, production capacity for each of these companies so that when one's found that works, they'll be ready to produce vaccines in quantity at that organization. So that's very promising. That's the sort of thing that may make it possible for us to cut months off of the development time. And that is... um, that's a big deal because, you know, every month that we're in this situation is, is a great hardship for very, very many people. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the vaccine comes as soon as it can, um, the sooner the better for a, a, an effective vaccine. Now the question is, why don't we just use a bunch of vaccines and hope that they're good? Um, I, I know at least some people probably have that question. And that goes back to how vaccines work. Um, Inside your body, it looks at these different little chunks of the virus and says, ah, yeah, I know this. I'll produce the antibody to get it out. That's how your body, you know, fights off the viruses and stuff, bacteria you see, you know, day in, day out and don't get sick. The problem is, if it's a very close match, right? So you you had COVID-19 before and you get it again in your body, your body's going to say, ah, yeah, I know this. Get rid of it. If it's totally different than anything you've seen before, your body's not going to have a way to respond. But it'll crank up, you know, production, and eventually you'll get over it, right? That's what happens when you get the cold, get a cold, right? You get a, another type of coronavirus, you get a rhinovirus, you get something, and you've got just a cold, and then you feel better a little while later. The, the problem comes in in the middle. If it's kind of close to something your body's seen before, but not really, right? If you imagine it and on a scale, you know, if you get a vaccine for, for tetanus or something, you know, it's 99 or 100% the same stuff that your body's seeing. And so you're, ah, okay, I can fight this. And if it's 0%, well, then your body's just got to go learn how to do it and 
you know, if your your body's strong and you're in, you know, good immune condition for most diseases, um, you'll be fine with this, with that. Um, obviously this is a, a more fatal disease. And so that's why we're also concerned about it. Uh, but if you get into this situation where it's like 30% or 20%, and I, I, these aren't real numbers, right? This is just kind of t illustrating the idea. Your body will say, oh yeah, I recognize this virus. And it's not the virus that you're actually encountering. It's a different virus that it thinks is in there. It's going to go produce the wrong antibodies, and it's going to take a while for your body to figure out that that's not working. And that will make you get sicker than if you didn't have a vaccine at all. And so we can't rush through the testing and the vaccines, both for safety and efficacy. Because even if it's safe, it might not be just ineffective. It might be making the situation worse. So we've got to be very careful. And that's why we can't just, you know, fast track the vaccines because we've got to do thorough testing. Um, before we move on, I, I'm, you know, one thing I've, I've seen is if you take a look at the, the, uh, number of cases five days ago, between four and a half and 5% is times that number is the total number of deaths, right? So if you had a uh, hundred thousand cases five days ago, then we'll see four and a half to 5,000 deaths total today. Um, that's been remarkably consistent, and that's higher than the official estimate that you always hear of one and one to two percent. Um, I think there's a variety of reasons for that. It's very difficult to pin down the numbers on something like this because it's so many people and it's moving so fast. But just consider that the number of actual cases is likely much lower, and the number of deaths is likely a good deal higher than what we're able to track. Because if someone dies in their apartment and we, you know, they're not going to go test them afterwards. There's not enough testing capacity to go test everyone who dies. That's not going to get counted. They might suspect it, but it's not going to get counted in the official numbers. Um, and, and we know from, uh, you know, some studies in Iceland that about half of the people are asymptomatic carriers. They're, they have the disease. They don't have any symptoms. They don't feel sick. So, you know, actual number of cases is at least double what we think it is, but likely much higher because we're not testing everyone, right? If someone has symptoms, but they're okay, the recommendation is to stay at home and stay quarantined, right? Stay away from your family. So the, the numbers are higher, right? And in many, many cases, and I think once you kind of factor those things in, that's where the one and one to 2% comes in rather than the four and a half percent that, that I think we're seeing. Now you might ask why I picked five days to, to make that statement and not 10 days, not today, whatever. My reasoning is essentially that by the time someone gets sick enough to be hospitalized, um, you know, they're going to have had it for a while with the testing that comes out. It's going to take a while. So they're, you know, probably hospitalized by the time, if they're going to get hospitalized, um, by the time they come positive, on average. Some are going to be sooner, some are going to be later. But on average, I'd, I'd suspect that to be the case. And if you're going to end up in the ICU, I figure it's going to be on average about two two days after that. And if you're going to die, it's going to be, you know, two or three days after that. So from hospitalization to death, if you're going to die is probably something like five days on average. Again, maybe more, maybe less. Um, and hopefully you don't get it. Hopefully you don't need to go to the hospital. Um, you know, hopefully you are fine. Um, 
you know, most people who get this are fine, right? The majority are, but there's there are people who aren't. So that's that's where that number comes from. Um, I that's that's where I got to five days, and that's why I think the you know the fatality rate is probably a little bit, maybe a little bit higher, maybe not. But it's something to think about and and a reason to be careful. And if you want to, um, you know, go look at the CDC numbers, you can kind of figure this stuff out yourself. Um, that's an easy one to do because you just look at five days ago and look at today and compare. And you'll see that's kind of the percentage is has generally been in that range. So let's move on to um, the economic effects. The economic effects of this are stark. Um, this is a hard one to look at in a lot of ways. Um, one of the challenges we have as a civilization is the allocation of resources in term in general, but in, in terms of healthcare specifically. Um, if you're going to provide a say a life-saving treatment. Anyone would say we should do whatever we can to save someone's life, regardless of the cost. And if there's unlimited resources, that's fine, but there's not, right? At some point, you're spending money, spending doctor time, using machines, and it's at the expense of something else. And so we end up, you know, putting some kind of a price on it. Insurance companies do things. Hospitals have ways of looking at this kind of stuff. And um, people are kept in the, you know, the, the patient family is kept in the, in the decision-making process around that because we don't want this to be a purely economic decision, right? But that's a, that's a real concern in how do we allocate resources towards healthcare. Um, but it doesn't just extend into healthcare. If you look at a safety regulation, um, you can also look at the safety regulation and say, all right, well. Is it worth spending nine million dollars on this? Is it worth spending a hundred million dollars on this? Right? How how much additional safety should we add to a car or to an airplane to say it's safe enough? And so to deal with this, economists have to come up with some way to make that trade-off make sense. And they they use what's called the economic value of a human life. It's not a perfect measurement, but it gives a dollar figure on how much money is it worth spending to save someone's life. And the figures are generally pretty high. Um, usually, you know, I've I've seen different figures. The one that sticks in my mind is nine million. I've, I talked to a government economist about this once, um, you know, because I, I find the concept fascinating because it's a it's a very numerical analysis on something that's really hard to do numerically, but must be done in some sense because we need to. We need to find a way to make trade-offs in society. Everything is a trade-off. Anyone who tells you that it has to be absolute, you know, they're, they're I think, missing a, a lot of the gray that's in the world, right? Every decision we make is a trade-off. Um, you know, if we spend money on one thing, we're not spending it on something else. We spend time doing one thing, we're not spending time doing something else. So, looking, looking at this from an economic perspective, you know, if a thousand people die we can prevent that at nine million dollars for the economic value of a human life we're talking about nine billion dollars if we're talking about two million people dying 
which is not an exaggeration, um, if we didn't do anything to control this outbreak, my personal estimate is that that's a low low number. Um, if we did absolutely nothing, but I, I guess you know people would probably start to start to take some of these measures even if they weren't told to. So maybe maybe it would stopped at two million, but I would, I would expect it to be higher to you know the four to five to six million range if we didn't do anything. Because we're you know we're talking about sixty percent of the population, seventy percent of the population getting it before there's enough herd immunity to stop it, and you know overloaded hospitals, uh, you know two percent fatality rate, possibly more, right? We're we're looking at a huge huge number of people when you have three hundred thirty million people in a country, as the United States does, or you know one point two billion in India, right? You'd be looking at at tens of millions of people. Um, that's a real risk, and I mean, there are countries that aren't aren't don't have strong enough rule of law and strong enough institutions. They're they're at real risk. So, we had to take some actions. Now, the longer we wait, the harder the problem becomes to address. The longer we've got to do these sort of actions to flatten the curve and stabilize things, and and prevent transmission. The earlier we do things, the more um, surveillance we can do around it. You know, testing people at random and um, you know, in the in the community, right, and not not against their will, but you know, get some swabs and figure out you know who's out there that has it, so that you can find hot spots early on. Do uh, contact tracing and you know, quarantine people so that we can keep the disease from spreading. Um, the earlier you do stuff, the the better. Uh, but if you don't act early, you're going to end up spending a lot of money, and and it's going to come down to or say it this way, losing a lot of money economically. Um, people aren't going to want to go out to risk their lives unless they have to, right? You're going to be hard to get the economy running anyways right now, and it's it's time to keep people safe. But if you want to put a dollar figure on it against 2 million people that could have, if we hadn't done anything, died from this disease, times $9 million, it is a tremendous figure, right? It's $19.8 trillion. So that's that's kind of the magnitude we're looking at. Um, you know, and, and so of course it's a major economic disruption, but it's one probably worth making. Um, there are a few countries that have had some experience with this sort of thing before, right, um, in recent years. SARS and MERS uh, hit, you know, mostly in, the, in Asia. Middle East, and so um, Taiwan and South Korea had some experience. They were able to address it quickly, and they haven't had to do such severe shutdowns. Um, some other countries, many, most countries lacked that experience. Um, some of the leaders were incredulous, or you know, didn't didn't uh, believe this to be as bad as predicted, or you know, who knows, right? Um, but you know, you, you see countries that are taking or have taken a lot longer than they should. I'd say the United States took longer than it should in, in many cases. Um, you know, there are definitely some big missteps here. Um, you also see problems in like Brazil and in Japan with you know not not doing this well enough or early enough. Um, you know, and so you end up in a situation where many of the the major countries, right, the the ones with large economies, are having to do some kind of a large-scale shutdown because they weren't able to catch it early enough. And some of it's down to bad luck, right? Um, you know, even if you do everything right, if you've got some bad luck, it can be much harder to take care of. 
Um, you know, Italy is somewhat in that category. Part, part of it, I'm sure, is cultural and, you know, the, you know, kind of very physical nature of, of Italian culture, right? But I think really a lot of it came down to bad luck that they had some people infected with this virus that were asymptomatic at a giant soccer game with tens of thousands of people and they spread it everywhere. And, you know, it's not the fault of the people that were there. They didn't know. Um, but that's very bad luck because now you've got this giant group of people just going and 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 bringing the virus around and no one knows because it takes days for, for it to start. Um, so you end up on this kind of lockdown and then you have to decide what do you do as a country about that economically. And there's a few options, right? You could just let it happen, not do anything. And I think there are countries that are going to have to take that approach. Um, some countries have taken an approach of sort of freezing the economy where they use government... Uh, revenue, government loans, whatever, to pay companies to pay their employees so that the jobs exist when they return. Um, you can use the social safety net, so, you know, unemployment insurance and things like that. And it's an open question which is best. My inclination is that, you know, keeping companies in business and operating is probably better than kind of freezing the economy approach that some countries are doing. But at the same time, if only a small number of countries are doing that when things return to normal, I don't know that their market will still fully exist. I mean, within the country, the economy will be strong, but most countries have a lot of international customers, and if your international customer base isn't there, um, you know, maybe maybe that's not as good. Maybe there's going to be different needs for the economy once this is over. And so maybe the safety net approach is better. I don't know. Um, like I said, I, I kind of intuitively like the idea of keeping companies doing what they're doing um, to the degree that we can because it takes a long time to build a good company. But I don't know. Um, we you know That's really an open question. I think one thing to remember when we think about this versus the Great Depression is central bankers have learned a lot of lessons. There's been a lot of downturns. We've we've done a lot of responses. The the central banks of you know the United States and the Bank of England, right? The Federal Reserve, the the Bank of England have done a lot of stuff to bolster companies and um, you know provide liquidity in the market and you know to a certain extent use uh, loans and things to help. Uh, improve the possibility that these companies can stay in business, and, you know, even while this furlough is going on. So maybe they're taking kind of a middle road approach, and maybe that will be effective. I don't know. Um, I hope I hope all these measures are effective. I'd like to see us come through the other side and recover quickly. I, I think that because of these measures that the Federal Reserve is taking and and um, some of the economic rescue bills and things, I think that at least in the United States and a lot of the you know, European economies and, and large Asian economies, the financial structures will hold up. This isn't 2008 where it's an explosion caused by, you know, a bunch of risky, you know, uh, financial transactions and, you know, people owing money that they don't have. This is an economic slowdown because production has significantly declined. But there's no reason it can't return um, as long as people can purchase. And I think that's a possibility. So that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping for, you know, is, is that there, 
is the ability to recover because we're able to keep enough institutions um, that you know, employment institutions around and, and working well. You know, there's going to be state and federal government jobs. There's going to be these large companies. I mean, I'm sure Procter and Gamble's doing better than ever right now uh, because they're they're producing all the all their cleaning supplies. One other thing about the economics of this is that the moral hazard is much lower. Um, this isn't a bunch of companies that made bad bets. This is a you know, once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. No one could have uh, adequately plan planned and prepared for this uh, effectively, I don't think. Um, could have responded better. But, you know, October last year, there was no this disease didn't exist, right? It hadn't been in humans. So there's no way to make plans to do much about this until maybe January when the news started to come out. So I guess we've got to think, what are the lasting effects of this going to be? And I, we're talking about major economic disruption. So, of course, we look back to the Great Depression. What were the lasting effects there? And, I mean, interestingly, the Great Depression, not that many years later, right, we had a, a big war right afterwards. That also was a major economic uh, you know, upheaval, right? It, it kind of, there wasn't much of an end to the Great Depression before World War II, but after World War II, there was tremendous economic growth. Um, some of that came down to the fact that the government was paying for factories to be built and then they were there. Um, but, but, you know, part of it's pent-up demand and part of it's the, the cycle of the economy. And so, you know, we're not, we're not talking about a permanent recession, which, if you know the economic definition of recession, which is two consecutive quarters of economic contraction, permanent recession is an insane phrase, but I did hear a politician use it once. <laughs> um, like, you know, we're not talking about something that is going to be permanent. There will be growth again. There will be, you know, a positive economy again. And, you know, maybe maybe this is an opportunity for countries to look at ways to rearrange their economy to be better for the planet, you know, um, better for people's lives, improving happiness. I, I don't know. There, there may be some opportunities that some countries take to improve things as they go to rebuild and rebuild in a way that makes them happier, more competitive, more uh, ecologically friendly. Um, the big lasting effect in the Great Depression, if, you know, I think back to my grandmother and grandfather, was their sort of frugal nature. You know, very much uh, waste not, want not uh, sort of idea. Um, you know, my grandma saved her, her tinfoil when she was done with it. Um, you know, maybe we'll see a lot less disposability in things, which wouldn't be bad. In thinking about this, we have to ask ourselves, how often can we afford to do this? The last pandemic was 100 years ago. And maybe, maybe once in 100 years, we can afford to do something like this. But I don't think we can afford to do it every 10 years, or every 30 years, or even every 50 years. Um, I mean, it's it's incredibly disruptive, and so what can we do about that? Well, we're going to need to get better. That's going to mean new laws, um, you know, more respect and, and funding for health researchers. You know, maybe we need, uh, like the war against cancer, we need a war against the, the common cold. Because if we have a, a common cold vaccine, that means we've figured out how to vaccinate against 200 different viruses. That's a whole new ball game. That's a whole new level. 
I read that there's someone working on developing a permanent flu vaccine, a flu vaccine that right now I think it's in seven shots. But if they can get it down to, you know, a few shots, one shot maybe, then they'll be able to say, yeah, you're immune from the flu for ever, for 10 years. I don't know. But it can catch all the flu strains. And there's some things about the flu that make it a um, complicated disease and more, more likely to mutate in ways that are meaningful and ways that your body won't know how to fight. And that's that's why everyone assumed the next pandemic would be like the last pandemic and be the flu. The fact that it's a coronavirus, you know, that one was definitely a surprise from, from everything I've read. I'm certainly no expert in this stuff. Um, I think back to the engineers, the space race, you know, there, there was a time when we were putting rockets in space for the first time and a lot of kids were inspired by that. And, you know, they had that, that way that the engineers in the 1950s dressed with the short sleeves and the pocket protector. And that that became kind of the stereotype of a nerd, even though no one dresses that way in real life. But, you know, Revenge of the Nerds made it that way, uh, the, the movie. And um, it's it's something that maybe, you know, some people will be inspired to go into bioengineering, biomedicine. I, I don't know, right? Some go into research and solve these big problems because they don't want to see this happen again. I know I don't want to see it happen again. And, you know, maybe we can have some new laws around surveillance for this kind of thing. We can streamline things in the, the FDA, do more surveillance uh, testing or allow researchers to do surveillance testing more easily. Um, those are the things that I think, you know, can help us to prevent this from happening again, at least, you know, as, as frequently. And, and we've been playing with fire for a long time in some sense, because we have such incredible ability to travel internationally, right? I've, I've done episodes on that in the past. I'm going to do more of them, but this incredible ability to travel means that Viruses have an incredible ability to travel. The bubonic plague, which is a bacteria, it it wiped out like half of Europe and like two-thirds of Asia over the course of five years. Um, if we had something like that that we couldn't control today, it would wipe out that much, but it would do it in a much shorter period of time. I think back to uh, this episode of a TV show called Sliders, where they... This kid built an interdimensional travel device. And the first dimension that they went into was one where uh, antibiotics had never been discovered, and so everything was wrapped, and it was a very sterile environment. Who knows if some piece of that might come to our world, you know? Um, it's hard to say. But, you know, there there are some laws and, and things that maybe are going to come out of this, and we'll we'll find ways to improve. I think social changes are also likely. At the end of the movie Contagion, you see uh, the head of the CDC's response, and I think it's a Surgeon General or something. They shake hands, and it's kind of symbolic that like they're shaking hands again because the you know, vaccine is there or something. But I don't know. I think I think handshakes might be on their way out after a year of social distancing. For the rest of my life, it'll probably be hard if someone puts their hand out for me to not grab it. But I'm, I'm going to try. I don't think I'm alone at that. My boss at work has been saying the same thing. So, you know, handshakes being on their way out, 
in terms of uh, cold and flu, it's probably a, a good thing. And there are other cultures that have their own ways to greet people without shaking hands. Right? We shake hands to show that we're not carrying weapons, but, I mean, if you're wearing a t-shirt, that's not really proving anything, is it? Because your, your arm is bare anyways. Um, but, you know, if you, you think about in Asia, they, they do uh, the... They put their hands together and put them up in front of their face. Um, I think it's called, a lot of people notice, like the Namaste thing. Um, but it's not unique to India, and there's different names in different places for it. Um, you know, in, in uh, Japan, they bow. So there's there's different ways we can greet each other, right? There's fist bumps, there's waves. Um, you know, in, in pretty rural places where people don't spend a lot of time close to one another physically just because it's so spread out and they're out on the ranch or whatever, you know, they, they might tip the hat. They might wave. I, I read about um, a salesman who went into that sort of environment, and he had to know, like, if he's that far out, you don't shake hands because you end up too close to the person's personal space. So maybe the idea of personal space is going to change. It's strange because personal space is very much tied to where you live. If you live in a big city, your personal space bubble is much smaller than if you live in the country. That seems to be a natural effect. I don't know how that's going to change. I mean, if you there, there's a study somewhere I read in a, read about in a book that says if you film the interactions between Japanese and American businessmen from the top, it looks like they're dancing with the Japanese men leading because they step forward, and then the American man will or woman will step back because Japanese business people tend to be coming from you know a big city like Tokyo. And the Americans tend to be from a city that's not quite as dense, and so we have a larger concept of personal space. So I don't know if that's going to change, because it seems to be naturally related to our environment, but, you know, maybe it will. Um, I definitely think people are going to be way more aware of hygiene, right? You know, if you see someone not washing their hands well, it's going to kind of be like, are you kidding me? You know, there's going to be some social pressure there. I suspect that we're going to end up with a lot of families that are strengthened by this. Um, you know, families that are together right now are spending more time together than they ever have. Um, and that, that I think, in the end is probably a positive thing. I spent more time with my family. It's been, it's been really good in reality. I mean, it's hard to be at home and, and kind of cooped up, but it's, it's good to spend more time with your family. I think people at least for a while are going to have a lot more desire to see nature and just be out so you know maybe we'll see more people at national parks i think people are also going to be less trusting of big crowds especially in the next year but i think beyond that you're going to get used to just maybe we take it easy last change i think is you're probably going to see less eating out there's an economic part to that for sure but i also think there's a lot of people who are just cooking and they're going to get used to it and i think if you're really used to cooking all the time, you're less likely to want to go out to eat. But then again, there's probably going to be some major pent-up demand. You know, I, I hope that the uh, the restaurant owners are able to keep the restaurants and and they're able to reopen them and and uh, you know and do what they love and and do what they're good at. I hope that this this discussion has been both hopeful but also real uh, you know i, I want to be authentic i want to be um realistic with this and and talk straight on it you know it's it's still a bad situation 
but we're all trying. People are, are working. I know more than one person who's working on putting together masks for first responders. There are people working to make this better, and I know some of you are doing that as well. Um, and if you are, thank you. Um, if you're working as a as a food delivery person, thank you. If you're working as a doctor or a nurse, thank you. If you're delivering the mail, thank you. This is a hard time to be out there doing that kind of stuff. And if you're out there doing that, you're you're doing something really amazing. You're helping other people. And if you're helping those people, right? You're you're making masks for the policemen and the firemen. You're doing something amazing. And you're helping our society, you're helping our culture, our our country, your country, wherever you're listening to this, you're helping. And you're helping it to be strong. And that's the kind of citizen we should all strive to be. And if you're staying at home and not going out and not trying to infect other people, you're trying to, you know, stay safe, you're still helping. And keep doing that. Because it's it takes everyone right now. It's a tough time, but it'll pass. And you're never going to get this opportunity again to spend this time with your family, to watch so many TV shows, to learn, to whatever you're going to do. Take this time and use it to your advantage. So I hope this, is, this has been positive for you and given you some, some perspective and some ways to think about this. We don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't know if there's going to be a second wave. There may, very well may be. We don't know if we're going to have to you know, come out of quarantine and go back in. But we do know that it works and that we can keep people safe. I appreciate you listening tonight. I know that listening to podcasts is probably harder now than, than it normally is. It's definitely reflected in, uh, in the statistics I've seen in, in this show. But I appreciate you listening, especially all the way through here. We'll be putting out more, more stuff in the near future here. Thank you for listening. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.